Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here at Salem. And we are um, looking at the book of Esther, of course. Um, as you have guessed, um, we are looking at this book uh, till the end of May, and we're about uh, halfway through it. And so if you're coming in late, uh, I'll hopefully be able to catch you up to speed a little bit. Uh, it's an ancient story in the, in the Old Testament. It's, been, it's controversial whether it should be included in the Old Testament because it never uses the word God. Um, so it's written in a kind of, to a kind of a secular audience, which I think in many ways is us in our time, which is one of the reasons I want to look at it. And I believe that it actually is based on uh, true events. Um, some scholars would say that uh, these things didn't happen. It's just a Jewish fable. But a lot of the names mentioned in it, including King Xerxes, we know from history are, are real people. Um, there's even been someone who's been found uh, that sounds like Mordecai, uh, an official in the king's business. So there are reasons to think this really did happen, and I believe it did happen. Um, in chapter 1, it was mostly about King Xerxes. So we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this man, who was a pretty terrible king. And, uh, and then in chapter 2, we met Esther, who is the cousin of Mordecai, who will be featured in this story, Mordecai. And, uh, and Queen Esther was, was uh, basically stolen by Xerxes and brought into his harem, and he forced himself upon her. And so you can imagine that Mordecai wouldn't like King Xerxes very much. And so uh, in chapter 1, we had the king of Persia, Xerxes. In chapter 2, Esther, who was this poor kind of peasant girl, has been lifted up to be the queen now uh, of the whole kingdom of Persia. Those are the two main characters. But now in chapter 3 we get to the real conflict. This is where, in some ways, uh, Xerxes and Esther are simply a setup for the real conflict that happens in this chapter. And the real conflict is between Mordecai and between he and Haman. And Haman is an official, very powerful official of Persia, a friend of King Xerxes. And Mordecai is a fairly low-level, middling official in the kingdom of Persia. And they have this clash uh, in this story. And one interesting thing about this clash, another reason I think that Esther is based on history, uh, is in, in, King, uh, in verse 10, if you look, we read that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, uh, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The enemy of the Jews was King Agag. Uh, it doesn't mean Haman is simply the enemy of the Jews. It means that Haman is from a long line of people uh, the, the Agagites who had been enemy of the, enemies for the Jews for hundreds of years. And then if you go back to chapter 2 verse 5 and read about Mordecai it said that he is the son of Kish who was the father of King Saul. So what you have here is these two long lines of uh, Agag and Saul. And actually Agag king of the Israelites and uh, king of the Amalekites and Saul the king of the Israelites, they had an ancient battle as well. Again, hundreds of years in the past. And so um, this conflict between Mordecai uh, and um, Haman is based on an ancient conflict. And actually, the Amalekites, who birthed Agag, uh, it says in Deuteronomy 25, 18, uh, attacked the Israelites on the way out of Egypt when they were faint and weary. And they cut off the stragglers, the women and children who were lagging in the rear. So the, the Amalekites are a, a, a deeply hated foe of the Israelites and were essentially trying to annihilate the Jewish people 
way back in the Exodus in, in around 1500 BC. And now here we are around 500 BC, a thousand years later, and Haman is trying to do the same thing. So again, I think this is, this is coming out of uh, real historical events. Look at verse 6. He looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. So Esther 3 is not just a personal conflict between uh, these two, Haman and Mordecai. It's not even a racial battle, so don't think of it as between Amalekites and Jews, although that's part of it. But truly, it's a spiritual battle. And it's a battle between, in many ways, people who are insecure, looking around, and in need of human adulation and worship, which, of course, is Haman. And uh, it says in verse 5 that when he saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. That's kind of the crux on which the whole story turns. And that's a kind of a person, um, which I've described as someone of the empire before. But uh, that, is a, that, is, that is part, that's the spiritual battle of darkness in a way. And then you have uh, Mordecai, on the other hand, in verse 2 says he refused to bow down and show Haman respect because he was confident. And uh, he was confident in God's love. Um, he, he trusted, he was always looking up for him, his identity. Whereas Mordecai is kind of, I mean, Haman's always kind of looking around and looking down on people to, to get his identity. So you have this battle, not just between uh, Haman and Mordecai, and not just even between the Amalekites and the Israelites. It's, the, the, it's a spiritual battle, a deep, lasting spiritual battle between the empire, which is always a looking around and looking down, uh, insecure, because it, it can never get enough praise, and the kingdom of God, which is based on God's love and trust and confidence in God. So you have Haman, we'll look at that first, and his insecurity, and then uh, Mordecai and his securities. And I want to kind of get into the motives of what, what was driving these two characters. So first of all, Haman. It's a funny thing for me to call him insecure, because he looks like the opposite of insecure. In verse 1, we read that... Um, Xerxes promoted him over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. That doesn't sound like an insecure person. He's a billionaire. In verse 9, it says, I will give 10,000 sacks of silver. That's 333 tons of silver. Some commentaries think that's an exaggeration. It would be the total annual tribute paid by the whole Persian empire to the king. Uh, This is obviously one of the big motivators of King Xerxes is that Haman is offering so many billions uh, just for uh, the King Xerxes to wipe out the Jewish people. So he's a billionaire. Uh, wherever he goes, people bow to him. It says, uh, verse 2, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect wherever he passed by. So as he's riding along on his horse, people are just bowing down here and there all the time. Doesn't seem like the actions of an insecure person. And then verse 3 In the end of the story, he has obtained absolute executive power over the Persian Empire, which was the biggest empire ever to exist at that time. In verse 10, it says that Xerxes removed his signet ring and gave it to Haman. And a signet ring meant that you could um, take that ring, dip it in wax, and then press it against any kind of letter and put your seal on it, and it would say, this is from the king. This is an executive order, and this must be done. So he is a billionaire, people bow down to him constantly, and he has absolute executive power. It seems absurd for me to call him 
insecure. It would be like calling Donald Trump insecure, which actually is a pretty good comparison because I think that he is extremely insecure. Uh, this, this is a, a man who is the star of a famous TV show, The Apprentice. He's worth $3 billion, and he is the most powerful man in the world right now. But in an article from MSNBC, and I understand that source, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but an article from MSNBC claimed that intelligence professionals have to walk on eggshells around Donald Trump. Uh, the presidential daily brief is often structured to avoid upsetting him. And then his main briefer, who's a veteran CIA analyst, has to adjust the order of presentation and the text aiming to soften the impact. The most powerful man in the world, $3 billion, he's the star of The Apprentice, and yet people walk on eggshells around him. The article goes on to call him, it calls him a delicate man-child, emotionally fragile, hair-trigger anger, and delicate sensibilities. Now, I don't know what you think about Donald Trump, but um, those things very much describe Haman, and they certainly describe people who seem very powerful. They seem very confident. In fact, it's built on almost nothing. It's built on sand. Notice how empty uh, the respect that, that Haman is always receiving, how empty it is. Verse 2, uh, the king's officials would bow down before him wherever he went because the king had commanded it. Now, that's pretty sad. If, if your respect is going to come from a command from the king... It's almost humorous that, that Haman is so insecure that he has to go to the king and say, uh, people are not respecting me like they should. Will you pl- uh, pass a law that mandates respect for me? It's like something from the office that Michael Scott would do. You, know, that you would make some kind of policy in the office that people must call me sir or whatever it is. Uh, if you have to legislate respect, you probably don't have any respect. It means that people are not naturally respecting you. And so the respect that uh, Haman is receiving here and the adulation is very much empty and hollow. The uh, Urban Dictionary defines little man syndrome as uh, a man small in stature who attempts to overcome the way he believes other people perceive him as diminutive in character. By one, attaching himself to authority figures Two, trying to manipulate himself into positions of control. Three, migrating towards positions of leadership. And four, having a fairly volatile temper. A man, small in stature, who attempts to overcome the way he believes other people perceive him. That's interesting. He's trying to overcome the way other people perceive him. Now, um, it's easy for me to criticize little man syndrome uh, because I'm tall. And it's actually been proven to not be true. Uh, At the University of Lancaster in England, a psychologist ran experiments that showed that people who were small actually did not have this kind of insecurity. But it's a a great word. Uh, It's also called the Napoleon complex, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, But the idea is that um, a person who is small in soul, in spirit, uh, is always casting around, looking around for people to be able to respect them so they can feel good about themselves. And that's what's going on with Haman. And that's what's going on with a lot of us. You know, you can be a a believer in God. Um, You can call yourself a very strong Christian. Uh, There are a lot of churches who have pastors, uh, even large churches. Sometimes the larger the church, the more so, uh, where the pastor is incredibly insecure. 
and is in constant need of praise and people saying great things about them. Sometimes the, the more power a person gets in life, the more they need that all the time to be propped up by human praise. When I got out of college, I, um, I had a job interview in London, and uh, it was to be a waiter. So it sounds more glamorous than it really was. It was to be a waiter at a very nice hotel in Hampstead. So um, they made me wait for 30 minutes when I got in there in the hotel um, just to see the manager. I had to wait 30 minutes. And they told me to come in at like 1 p.m. Got there at 1 p.m. I was dressed nicely. Had to wait for 30 minutes just to see the manager who was going to interview me. And when I met him, uh, he took me in his office and he told me to sit down. Kind of like he was uh, landed gentry and I was a serf. I mean, in England, there is more of a class sense. Kind of like uh, he was at a higher level than me. And as an American, I could not stand that. So I sat down reluctantly uh, a, little, a little bit after he told me to sit down. Just a little bit after. And um, then he left the room. And he said, I've got to make a phone call. And I really think that he was intentionally messing with me when he did this. And so I waited and I waited. And I got angrier and angrier as he failed to come in to interview me. I mean, this is for a job as a waiter. And then uh, about 30 minutes into that period, I just bolted. I just left the whole hotel. I got out of there. And I felt so good and strong on the way home. And then when I got to the place I was uh, staying, um, my wife, well, now she's my wife. At the time, she was not. But uh, she, she was not proud of me for bolting like that. She didn't think it was a great idea. She didn't think it was brave. And I got a call about 10 minutes later. It was that manager. He's like, you get up here right now and let me interview you. And for some reason, I went up and let him interview me. (laughs) Which just shows how hollow and how silly and how foolish our pride, our arrogance, and our need for people to praise us is. Now, that kind of anger uh, has probably happened to you before when you feel disrespected or dissed. But it can be funny at times, but that that kind of anger can actually boil into kind of a rage. And when you let that fester and begin to cultivate that and nourish that, it becomes a very frightening thing. And a lot of men have that kind of rage. Uh, It it had happened to Haman at some point in his life, maybe because he just kept getting more and more power and needing more and more attention. And so if it wasn't given to him by anyone, he would just fly off the handle. He would become furious. I mean, imagine his poor wife and children. When Mordecai would not bow down, this is in verse 5, he was filled with rage. When Mordecai would not show him respect. And so rage is happening here when, uh, when when you move from desiring respect, which I think that's legitimate, you should desire respect. Uh, People should respect you. You're made in God's image. But when it moves from desiring it to demanding it to becoming enraged when you don't have it, That's when things get scary and rage begins to burn within. And if you cultivate it, it can become kind of a permanent thing. And we call that, you have anger issues. And uh, in the case of Haman, the rage became completely out of proportion with the offense. And for a lot of us, that's true. The offense is small and the rage is huge. In this case, it's so bad. I think it's a warning to all of us. It's so bad that... Um, it's like Hitler, you know, who nursed grudges his whole life against Jewish people. From the time he was in art school, uh, he, he had nursed grudges his whole life. 
And so when he became the Fuhrer, the rage was there, just ready to be kindled. And uh, just like Hitler, and like many times in world history, uh, a holocaust was attempted to wipe out the Jewish people. And in verse 6 it said, he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai. He looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. And now I know that is an exaggerated form of rage, but the seed form is there. Uh, And all of us who demand respect and get furious when we're not respected. Or it could be you're sulking. You know, that's a kind of a a small form of rage. Uh, Maybe turn inward. But uh, when you sulk because people are not paying you attention. Or another kind of manifestation of this is when you lure people into encouraging you. Sometimes by, by being really down on yourself and acting like you're really sad and you feel terrible about yourself. And then you force people to, to be uh, encouraging you. I'm really good at that. And, and really um, becoming more and more uh, creative in the ways you force people to encourage you. And if they're not saying new ways of encouraging you, like if it's the same old thing, like it was a great sermon, you want more than that. You want, you know, it was a, that was a brilliant sermon or that was an insightful sermon or that was an incredibly powerful. And you just keep wanting more and more of that to keep you afloat. Because your ego is really based on looking around and trying someone uh, to find someone that will respect you and, and build you up. So that's insecurity. And it comes from looking around, looking down, and not, not looking up. Because when you look up is when you begin to have confidence. And Mordecai, I believe, uh, is the opposite of insecurity. Uh, this is a confident man who has confidence because he knows who he is. And he knows he's a Jew. And he knows that God favors him and blesses him. So let's look at Mordecai. We've looked at Haman and insecurity. Uh, What about confidence in Mordecai? Well, notice in verse 2 it says, uh, All the king's officials would bow down but Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. And he was not only offending Haman, he was breaking an order from the king. Uh, The very king that Mordecai knew uh, was enraged when people would break his orders. So he's taking a risk here by not respecting Haman. And you could say, I thought about this this week when I was reading this passage. You could say that, um, that Mordecai was just like Haman, that he was also insecure, that he also needed respect, but that he was just kind of on the bottom instead of on the top, that he was, like, he was like Haman without the power, and that he was emotionally fragile, and that he had hair-trigger anger. You know, you could see it that way, but I don't think that's the way it is, because um, Mordecai did this thing earlier in the story, which we see in verse 21, where he actually risked his life uh, to save the king that he had every reason to hate. I mean, he had every reason to hate this king. This king had taken his cousin and forced his cousin into bed with the king and to be part of his harem. So Mordecai had every reason to hate King Xerxes. But in verse 21, we read that when Bigthana and Teresh, um, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, that means they were very powerful men. They were his personal guards. And when Mordecai overheard them, um, they became angry at Xerxes and they plotted an assassination. So Mordecai hears about that assassination attempt. And he knows how dangerous these two men are. And that if, that if his word, um, you know, if he had told Esther and had gotten to these two guys first, they would have killed him. 
So he was risking his life to protect the king. 